Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Welcome back to Innovation Capital presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, episode five, Ray sits down with Carla Johnson, who is a world-renowned storyteller, speaker, and prolific author. Consistently named one of the top influencers in B2B digital and content marketing, Carla regularly challenges conventional thinking. Today, she travels the world teaching anyone and everyone how to cultivate idea-driven teams that breed unstoppable creativity and game-changing innovation. Her work with Fortune 500 brands served as the foundation for many of her books. Her 10th, Rethink Innovation, busts the myth that innovation is something that requires a specific degree or special training. In fact, Carla explains why. To be a successful company in today's hyper-competitive, customer-driven world, innovation must be everyone's business. This is an unbelievable podcast, everyone, and without further ado, let's jump right into the interview with Carla. Enjoy. Hi, Carla. Welcome to Innovation Capital. I'm really excited to welcome you on board today. Um, I just wanted to share many of our team members have enjoyed your book, Rethink Innovation. So it's opened up some really fun conjecture here at PatSnap over the last kind of uh, five to six months. So so we really enjoyed that. And just want to dive in and would love to kick off with learning a little bit about your story and your background, Carla, and how you ended up in the wonderful world of innovation and R&D. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'm delighted to be here, Ray. It's um, you're, you're, We're going to talk about some of my favorite things and I know things that your team and you and I have in common. So this is always really fun. And I have to, I have to say that my interest in, in innovation and at its root solving problems um, and how I got really excited about it started early in my career when I worked for architects. And it was that ability to look at what's this, what is it ultimately that we're trying to solve for and the experience that we want to create? And now how do we reverse engineer that? into what we do. And that, that was my background. I, um, I started in marketing for architecture firms, but when I left the architecture industry and went into tech, it was still that ability to look at what are we trying to solve for? And then how do we reverse engineer that into whatever we do, whether it's marketing, whether it's customer experience and, and ultimately for me now it's innovation. And I think it's that, um, uh, that ability to reverse engineer how we think about solving problems, what what we need to do to solve a problem and how we even identify, you know, understand and figure out what exact problem is it that we need to address. I think that's that's the biggest um, background that I think led me to where I am today and my whole mindset about innovation and how we approach it. Brilliant. And, and obviously we talk about the winners a lot. Uh, publicly and they're all over the, the internet in terms of the high performing innovators but we'd love to unpack where some of the folks struggle so organizations who do struggle with innovation and staying on top of their game what are the, some of the, the common characteristics you've noticed which lead to an organization not really living up to 
that potential on the innovation front. Oh man, and I I know you um, you've seen this before in organizations. One of the struggles that companies who aren't good at innovation have is that they're always chasing after the flavor of the month or the process of the month or the fill in the blank of the month or the year, the quarter, you know, or whatever. And, and you see groups go through this. And the reason that there's so much flip-flopping and to be honest, wasted money, wasted energy, lots of frustration, not just on the employee side, but on the executive side, because they're never able to fully realize the true potential of innovation First and foremost is because they lack a clear organizational purpose. They don't have that one North Star that points everybody into the same same direction and, and aligns people in that way. And I think pretty close behind that is they don't have the values that back up what need what behavior employees need to exhibit in order to fully um present that purpose and, and and make that purpose a reality. Now there's from there, there's a couple of other things that I see really successful companies with innovation do. And, and that next one is they're able to create space for innovation to happen. And, and I know a lot of people are still working from home right now. So it's not just physical space, which, which is, you know, one aspect of it, or, you know, right now, a, you know, a virtual space, a place where people can go, to practice and hone their skills as innovative thinkers. It's also the allowing the time to do it. And we look at so many companies who have so much on their plate right now, and they say innovation is important, but they don't give people the space of time to, to actually do anything about it, to, to practice their skills, to try out even in you know small incremental ways, ideas that they have. And I think that third space is, um, emotional. You have a, um, oftentimes a corporate culture that says innovation is absolutely key for us. It matters a lot and on and on and on. However, it's very clear, those unspoken rules that innovation is great. Trial and error is great. As long as you never error, you know, as long as you never fail. And, you know, there's innovation is inefficient. It involves failure and I would say that those are probably the top three things that I see when organizations struggle to be truly innovative that they're not giving full credit credit to and and, and heed as as guiding principles of innovation. Interesting. So you, you mentioned some pieces around obviously North Star cultural cultural it's people and execution from from what you shared there. So are there certain hotspots, certain geographies in this world where they get it right? Obviously, Silicon Valley is the obvious one where they do embrace failure well. Um, not celebrate failure, but just have a good mental model around it and have a healthy way of synthesizing failure. But outside of Silicon Valley, are there any geographies that have caught your imagination as kind of rising hotspots when it comes to being a hotbed for innovation? I would have to say, I mean, I, I think there are different urban centers that may be more likely. I know um, Chicago has redone some of their downtown business structure and created something that feels a little bit more like a mini Silicon Valley. Um, there's areas in, you know, different areas in Europe. I mean, I look at some things that are going on with Berlin and some of the design institutes. Um, I think there's a lot that's going on in 
Barcelona that's really driving toward innovation. Um, I have some colleagues who work in, in Stockholm, and I see that that's another area where people understand that in order to create innovation, you have to create an environment that allows it. And it doesn't just mean um, an environment to, to test and prototype products. It's an environment in which we, <laughs> in which we rethink how we approach innovation from a whole cultural organizational standpoint. So when you do have those R and D and product and service breakthroughs that they can move through that organization faster and with less friction so that they can go out and actually serve a customer faster and with greater support, passion and enthusiasm from that organization. On that cultural level, unpacking that slightly, what, what are some of the, the low hanging fruit, Carla, that you advise potential clients or current clients about when trying to create that space and, and trying to adapt that mindset? Are there, are, are there some potential quick wins which allow organizations to transform? And, and, and there are. And I think the, the one that I continually go back to that can help every uh, employee across the board understand, you know, regardless of what um, seniority they're in in an organization or what their role is or how long they've been there or, you know, whatever that qualifier might be, is that that organization really truly has to define their purpose. And when they do that, what it does is it helps people come to work every day, one with with a, like a spring in their step or a swagger as in, you know, I'm not here just to uh, process invoices in accounts payable or receivable, or I'm not here just to set up somebody's computer or laptop or, you know, VPN connection. So it works. I'm here to do something that actually changes the world. My little piece of the puzzle just happens to be IT or in finance or marketing or, you know, whatever your area is. And people take this for granted or they say, yeah, it sounds great, but they assume it's a nice to have. But absolutely, if you want to infuse an innovation mindset across your organization, the first thing you have to do is establish that core purpose that goes beyond making money, that expresses to every employee, this is why you are here every single day. And that um, it actually is a low-hanging fruit because as soon as you can do that and articulate it and consistently support it, organizations absolutely see a change in behavior very quickly. And, and one of the first places that they see it is the outcome um, in, in the sales process, because all of a sudden now the conversations that sales teams have with prospects or, or actual customers take a very different and much more strategic slant. And every business that is looking to buy something is doing so because they need to solve a problem. And unless an organization can truly articulate, here's the bigger problem that we solve, getting down into the nitty gritty of, you know, here's what we do, here's how it functions, here's how much it costs, those will always be very tactical and, and uh, price-driven conversations. And when you are always um, put in that price-driven conversation, it's really hard to be innovative in how you solve customer problems. So, so Carla, does that, that reminds me and echoes of... Uh, there's there's a great speaker and author called Simon Sinek, and he published a piece called Start With a Why, where he very much talks around an organization or an individual's North Star and what what's at their soul in terms of what they're trying to achieve. So is it quite similar to that? So 
an organization having a very clear why, how, what around their North Star and how innovation dovetails into that? Is that kind of, is it, is it akin to that type of mindset? You know, it, it absolutely ties into that. And there's a great example that Simon uses um, looking at the difference between how Apple sells and how Dell sells or, or how they tell their story. And if you start with, you know, here's what we sell. I, I sell you um, a computer that has this much RAM, you know, this much memory, you know, these kind of details. Do you want to buy one? It's like, well, you know, let, let me shop around. But if you start to talk about, you know, here's a computer that I have that helps you become more creative, helps you think differently, helps you, helps you, helps put the power of a business in your hands right now. Do you want to, you know, do you want to buy one? Well, that's a whole different sell. And when you look at a company like Apple, they're selling this vision. They're selling a purpose of what they want to do in the world. And yet you looked at the competitor Dell and Simon uses this example and, and they continue to talk about the technology and the features and the benefits. Well, those are all tactical things. Those aren't aspirational things that get you excited about, you know, hopping out of bed and, and getting to work and, and changing the world. And it is that difference that really makes um, a broad opportunity for how employees solve problems across an organization. Because if you come to work every day and your purpose is to, um, you know, help people think differently, help put the power of, of creativity in their hands, you have a much broader base and reference point from which to solve problems compared with you come to work every day and you look at how can I sell 400,000 more computers this month that have this specifics of memory and RAM and, and all these details. It's a very different mindset that you put in the hands of every single employee. And it's this, um, this micro change in mindset across an entire organization that culminates in a huge and, and actually very rapidly shifting approach to solving problems, which is the foundation of innovation, and how you find what problems matter to your customers the most and how you go about solving them. And, and it actually creates a much more collaborative environment within an organization because you're all there for the same reason. You, you mentioned a fascinating point, which we're obsessed about and we work with our clients on, um, is getting really close to the customer. So really becoming best in class in understanding end user insight. And I think PwC, they, they publish an annualized piece of research, Carla, called the Innovation 1000. And I think from 2018, that close fidelity to end user insight is one of the top characteristics. Well, one of them, I think there's seven altogether, but end user insights right up there on, on, on best in class innovation. So that's easy to say, but really hard to execute. There's not many companies who do that well. So when it comes to getting close to the customer and intrinsically trying to understand that end user insight, is there specific patterns that you've observed in the market, which, which is common between uh, best-in-class innovation practitioners and organizations? Yeah, that there are. And that's, that's such a great question. And I think the research from PWC is very fascinating at, at looking at these traits. And again, I, and, and this is a, um, it's a point that I just hammer home that the first thing that I go back to is purpose, 
because the difference between companies that are truly customer driven versus those that are their own brand or product driven is that they understand the difference they're trying to make in the lives of their customers. Um, Clayton Christensen talked about it. You know, what's the job to be done by the customer? And it's going back and understanding we're here to serve first. And that goes back to here's why we're here. And you have to be able to articulate and communicate that first and back it up with the values and behavior of how you perform as a company in order for that to be a trusted and believable message externally, which is demonstrated by proof of behavior by employees internally. Now, once you have that proof of, of, you know, here's why we're here, the next step that you take in order to um, exhibit that behavior is empathy for your customer. And there's a, there's a fair amount of research about companies that have um, score higher on an empathy index are more innovative because what they're doing is they're understanding the problem from the point of view of their customers. And this is why you've seen such a tremendous growth in the understanding and, and the application of, of design thinking and really putting truly, you know, a structure and a process to put yourself into your customer's shoes. Now, empathy for your customer when it comes to innovation often also means empathy for your internal customer because you may have the greatest um, solution to solve your customer's problem. However, you and I really know what happens inside companies and bureaucracy and politics and, and all of these things that stop great innovation from happening. And when you have empathy for your customer because of the purpose that you show up and serve every day, you have empathy for your other internal customers inside your organization. That changes the entire dynamic of how willing you are to, um, to listen to new ideas, to discover other options, to be collaborative and, and build answers together with that purpose of, of serving your customer. So, so, so this is interesting. It, it seems like this is very much led right from the top, right? It, the tone at the top. So right from the, the founder CEO or the, the hired CEO to drive that empathy but it's interesting. Do you find challenges around companies operating in a public environment who are under pressure by short-term earnings, shareholders, wider investors to hit revenue goals, but at the same time think long-term and have that empathy and, and be patient and thoughtful internally and externally when trying to develop innovation? Is that is that a challenge Obviously, it's, it's a, a challenge which is very much real. How do some of the large players get their arms around that one? Because that's a that's a chicken and egg scenario we sometimes find here at Patsnap. It is, and to be honest, it is. It comes from the definition of innovation and how they believe it exhibits itself. And there's it's it's also. Um, understanding the mindset that you don't have to choose between doing well financially as a company and doing good for your customers financially as a company. And we see this in a lot of organizations. Um, you know, Zappos is probably one of the premier ones. You know, you, you buy a pair of shoes, they donate a pair of shoes. They're incredibly financially successful. And we see up, you know, other examples in the B2B world. I look at um, digital industrial 
manufacturer, Emerson, which has done a tremendous amount of work to grow, um, grow and encourage students who are going into STEM as a profession, a profession, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. You know, it probably on the outside may not look like it's a smart financial decision or, you know, innovation decision to invest in students at the, you know, later primary or secondary um, levels of of school or, or university in order to become a more innovative company. But what they see is that by encouraging um, more students and more diverse students to stay in science, technology, engineering, and math, they create a powerful pool, which, you know, they can then tap into and recruit when they, when they graduate from university or their customers can, and they, they change the whole different kind of ecosystem. Now, another perception of innovation is that it's inefficient, is that it's long-term and it's really expensive. So you have to choose between, you know, this quarter's financial performance or being innovative. And that's one of the the really big things that I want people to rethink about innovation is it doesn't have to be huge and complex and you don't need to bring in outside consultants and spend millions of dollars and, and do all these things. If we really think innovation as, you know, at its root common denominator is all about solving the right problems better and faster and quicker, then what we're able to do is, is become more innovative at the same time that we become more financially um, better performing. Because when you release the expectation and the responsibility of innovating, of solving problems from one specific group, you know, whether that is a group that specifically has that innovation title, or if it's research and development or design thinking group, or, you know, whatever some of those labels are, and you spread that responsibility to every employee across the organization, you can become hyper innovative in very small ways in a very short amount of time. And if we go back to how do we, how do we make companies more um, productive? How do we have better ideas and more ideas to solve the problems that we have? That's the root foundation of what I want people to think about innovation. It's not just about huge investments and long-term strategies. It's also, you know, innovation with a little eye as, as much as it is with the big eye that we traditionally think of, you know, innovation and product development and in, in disruption. Hmm. So you see, so, so to kind of extrapolate that out to your broader framework, which the team really enjoyed, would love to learn more about your five-step framework, Carla, and, and how you generated it and, and how you developed it. It's fascinating. So yeah, we would love to uh, learn the story behind that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and this does harken back to my early years working in the architecture firm. Um, I looked at how architects solve problems. And, and it was interesting because throughout my work with marketers and salespeople and, and executives in organizations, a constant theme that I heard was either I, I could never be a problem solver, but, you know, an innovator because that's not my job or I'm not smart enough or I don't know how, you know, if you're at the um, maybe director below in an organization, there's some sort of um, unspoken permission or qualification that's there that, that makes people think I'm not that person. And then if you look at, at executives, one of the constant things that I hear from them is, 
I can't believe how many people come to me and expect me to solve these problems. I, I need the people on my team to be better at solving these problems themselves. And so as I, as I looked at innovation and, and ha, you know, what it means to an organization and that ability to solve problems, it's really looking at what is, what's the process that the most prolific, and when I say prolific innovators, I mean people who consistently come up with amazing ideas over long periods of time. And, and I'm talking decades, not just months or, or a couple of years, but truly prolific innovators over a long period of time. And I started to break it down. You know, I, I said, okay, like in architecture, if this is the outcome that you want, how do we reverse engineer it into the behavior that delivers that outcome or, you know, the design of, of a process or experience that delivers that outcome. And I started to, to research and also do a lot of interviews with these innovators and they were, you know, executives, they were frontline people, they were individual business owners, they were, um, you know, Fortune 50 type companies. It, it was across industries, size of companies, um, types of uh, job title, things like that. And I would say, you know, t tell me about your idea generation process. And, and a lot of them do like, like what we hear, you know, I don't know, the idea just came to me. And so what I did is that I, I would say, okay, if when this idea came to you, what were you doing? And, you know, what were you doing before that? And, and then what I saw in interviewing so many people is that they all had a process that they followed, whether they realized it or not. And that process, this is, this is the framework that I put together is one, people who are prolific innovators are amazing observers of the world around them. And they, they're able to, you know, rest their mind, put their phone down, not think about all that they had to do on their to-do list that day and just stop and really observe. And it doesn't mean, you know, you could be in nature, you could be in a coffee shop, you know, you could be in an airport, wherever you are. They're just very observant of what's going on, on around them. So that, so that's the first step. The next thing that they're very good at is taking all of those observations. And lots of times I call them dots, you know, every observation is its own dot. And they're able to take those dots and they start to find, you know, patterns. If it were stars they were looking at, they would start to see these dots, these stars as constellations. Um, they're able to distill what they see into patterns. And it could be something as simple as um, uh, it's all about people. It's all about building a community. It's all about adding greater height to something in a way, you know, that we'll figure out as we get into the idea generation process, but they're able to see some sort of pattern. And this is actually something that as humans, our brains genetically do naturally. It's just that we don't stop and take the time to let our brain do what it does naturally and very well. Then the next step is to take this, you know, kind of theoretical stuff of observation and distilling it into patterns and starting to relate that into the work that we do. And this is really a key step because one of the, the failures of innovation is people may see something that was great with um, another brand, you know, another nonprofit or an experience, and they don't understand how to relate the beauty of that into the work that they're doing. So for instance, when you think back about the ALS ice bucket challenge, and here's, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of people around the world dumping buckets of ice cold water over their head, what a lot of other nonprofits tried to do was to create some sort of silly challenge just like that, 
in order to have that kind of um, uh, fundraising success. But what they didn't understand is that while they observed what the tactic was, they weren't able to distill what made it successful. So it was about something that could be shared. It was about something that built a community. It was about something that gave people a sense of doing something to make the world a better place. And it's those patterns that you distill that you need to start relating into the work that you do. So it's not about creating something viral. It's about creating something that you can share as a community. So that's the third step. And then the fourth one moves into the idea generation process. But what happens unless you've done these first three steps is that people typically say, you know, we, we have a problem we have to solve. Let's get together. Let's start brainstorming. And they typically just rehash something that's already been done in an organization, or they try and copy and paste something that they've seen from another brand, another campaign, um, another product or service. And it fails miserably because there's no context for it. And then from there, generating that idea and pitching it in a way that creates a storyline for that idea that gives people context for that inspiration and helps them understand the passion and the purpose behind, you know, what's the problem that you're trying to solve and, and how is it that we create an idea, come up with an idea that truly is original. Now, when people follow this process, there's something really interesting that I see. One is that when they get to the idea generation process, they are wound up and ready to go. And they're able to come up with, you know, exponentially more ideas that are very diverse and different ideas than they've had during a traditional brainstorming or idea generation process. The other thing is that when they go to pitch them, they tell the story of the idea by following the exact process that they use to come up with the idea. So it gives people context for the idea and it doesn't make the idea sound so random. It also helps the person who's hearing the idea understand how to give feedback you know, I liked it because of this, you know, what I'd like to see is something more along these lines. So it opens up a conversation, which is an important part of, you know, evolving ideas, um, helping innovation grow is to build that collaboration and, and support from not just the person or, or team who's pitching the idea, but from the rest of the organization that needs to help support it and, you know, see it through to fruition. Carla, it's interesting you raise observation as one of the key steps. It reminded me of one of my favorite car designers. It's a chap called Frank Stefferson, and he d designed the McLaren P1 and the McLaren 720S. And actually, that design inspiration occurred while he was on holiday in the Caribbean. And actually, it was the, it was the sailfish, which he noticed while diving and learned about while on holiday, um, kind of inspired the the design of that car. So the story is upon his, well, on the way back from the Caribbean, um, he ordered a, a sailfish to be shipped to the McLaren HQ. And I think they call that observational design inspiration biomimicry. So actually learning from nature and using that knowledge to fuel design in, in other kind of materials or, or objects. So it, it's fascinating you mentioned that because we see m many organizations deploying that observation methodology to kind of really innovate and, and move the needle. 
Yeah, it, it is. And, and actually BMW's iDrive system was mm-hmm. inspired by somebody who observed the video controls in the gaming system, you know, the gaming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so segueing to that, so points one and two in that process are fascinating, Carla. So the second one, the patent recognition piece, and I, and I think biologically, well, most folks are wired to do that well. Uh, not everyone, but if you're a deep thinker and innovative by nature, you probably do do that well. But what we're seeing here is how AI, are, AI is supporting uh, innovation organizations, chief execs, R&D leaders to put that patent recognition on scale and use machine learning to, to say, connect the dots between all of that unstructured data that we have to work with to identify those really compelling patterns. So is that another observation that you are seeing in industry where, um, and would love your thoughts on a broader level on how you think AI will augment that, that patent recognition step? You know, it's it's a great point about unstructured data because I think that's a big part of innovation that we overlook. We look at things that are easy to measure or that can be measured. But I think the power of AI and what it does for innovation is that it can it can drop into all of these things that are hard for people who are trying to be efficient and effective and and um, quick turnaround with whatever kind of data we have, that they're missing some of the most important insights that can come out of the data that we have. So that's a really important aspect of AI and innovation that we need to look at that can start to bring some, um, uh, can, can start to alleviate some of the perceived risk of the front end of innovation and maybe some of the perceived inner inefficiencies of it that can help us understand and identify those patterns. Now, one thing I want people to be careful about is not to 100% rely on the technology all the time, because we still need to use our brains to say, you know, what, what do we think about what this technology is telling us in order to do different things so that it can help us be better at what we do. But I think that power of AI is something that isn't often brought into that very, very fuzzy front end of innovation that is a huge opportunity. You talk about is this piece around being consistent, new, and reliable. So you covered the consistent piece, and that, that's clear. I think best-in-class innovators are typically relentless over decades. That's why they probably have that type of market cap and that type of success with their customers. But when it comes to the reliable element, could you unpack that further? Because that was interesting when you mentioned that as a as a key DNA strand on high-performing innovators. Yeah, and, and actually, when as I define innovation, I define it, you know, that consistency part, the prolific innovator, they're people who are able to have that consistency in coming up with new, great, and reliable ideas. And when I look at new ideas, I, I define that as the, the kind of ideas that are new to your industry. Um, it may take something that you've seen someplace else, like we talked about, you know, BMW's iDrive system coming from the, the gaming industry, the guy who went fishing and looked at the gills and took that back and into his work. So it's, it's something that really surprises and delights you. It's, it's very unexpected. 
in how it's used or, or how it's exhibited. Um, a great idea, to be honest, is a little bit more subjective, but it's something that inspires and it, and it delights you. And um, great advertising legend David Ogilvy would describe it as something that makes you jealous that you didn't come up with that idea. And, um, you know, you think about something like uh, digital mapping services that let you get rid of your big, huge paper atlas that if you would go on a, on a car trip that you had to have to figure out your way, you know, there's, there's a big wow factor for it, but neither of these things on their own, or even these two things together are enough to deliver sustainable innovation. You have to have that third factor, which is reliability. And that's something, that's an idea that can stand the test of time. Um, it makes you money. It's, it's something that, that, you know, is absolutely something that you can bank on. And you think about things like that across industries, you know, streaming content, um, moving music online, moving uh, travel industry online. You know, those are things that we now know, okay, you can make money. As crazy as it can seem, you, you can make money. So it's the combination of, of looking at innovation from the point of an idea that fulfills all three of these criteria, they all three have to be present and then being able to deliver them consistently over this, you know, long period of time, like being relentless about being this kind of deliverer of ideas. Okay. And, and, and another big tactical and strategic challenge we find with our customers is, a lot of innovation leaders that we work with are, are constantly trying to achieve that holy grail of aligning innovation with the commercial organization. And that tension has been around for a long time and, and spoken about a lot online and, and through various publications. So what are some of the best practice you're seeing on aligning R&D innovation teams with the board, with sales and marketing, corporate development? Is there some best practice and tips that you're seeing in the marketplace. Yes, there are. And it's, um, it's a tough dynamic. I'll say that. And it's part of it is because the, the employee base outside of the innovation group or R and D doesn't feel they either have the qualifications, the responsibility or the accountability for seeing innovation um, to see these things executed. And so that's why one of the key concepts that I want people to rethink about innovation is that it innovation is everybody's business. Because if you're looking at an organization that as a whole delivers that experience that supports that brand purpose that we've, that I might've mentioned yet already, um, it's, it's not just an, it's not just a product or service base. We have to look at how can everybody deliver on that promise. And so there's lots of organizations that say, um, you know, that's the innovation group. So that's not my job. So when it comes time to have, um, have support and help and, and, uh, um, getting these ideas out the door, if the rest of the organization, you know, the, the other 90% of the organization doesn't buy into an innovation mindset, they don't have any emotional, you know, reason or, um, uh, you know, uh, motivation to help get these new ideas out the door. And they say, you know, that, that's, that's what they do. But what I do over here, I'm in marketing, I'm in sales and yeah, we'll get around to it, but you know what? There's, there's a lot that's on our plate already and we'll leave that to the product people. 
or they say, you know, I'm not really smart enough. They're the ones with the PhDs. They're the design thinkers. They're the data analysts. They're the engineers. They're the, you know, whatever that, that label might be. They don't see themselves as innovative, as innovative themselves. But if you can change the entire mindset or at least a, you know, a grassroots understanding of what innovation is and their role in it and their whole charge is to help solve problems as, you know, as a key under, underlying message of what innovation is, then it starts to change those dynamics. It isn't about, oh my gosh, I have to do this again now. Do you know how long this takes? Do you know this is so much work? It's about let's solve the problem so we can get whatever, you know, a product R&D group, you know, whatever they've developed, let's get it out the door. Let's get it in front of customers. Let's, let's, let's collaborate with them and start to get feedback and input and insights from customers much earlier. So it isn't to the point of, okay, we're going to launch this product and it turns out not to be exactly what, you know, what a customer wants or needs. Let's start to build the closer collaboration with marketers as the voice of the customer and R&D so that, you know, when, when something is developed, it is more spot on about what matters to a customer. And it's also understanding for the rest of the organization that innovation for customers isn't always about a product or service. Oftentimes, it's about just simplifying the way that business is done. And unless you're willing to take on that responsibility and, and accept that innovation is everybody's business, you can have the greatest product service in the world. But unless it is so painful and, and complex for, you know, for people to buy it, it doesn't matter how great it is. You, you have to look at how you can consistently innovate the business model through which you deliver what it is that you sell. So it's, you know, we see that quite often as well, where at the board level, they're trying to recruit and enable the organization so everyone has skin in the game when it comes to innovation. But more to the R&D organization, another trend that we're noticing and we're hearing from the innovation leaders that we work with is they're actually reimagining, Carla, how they recruit from the ground up, right right up to the graduate level program. And one thing that we're noticing is they're looking for the technical chops, that that's bread and butter within R&D or innovation, but they're also looking for storytellers. So looking for R&D folks, innovation managers who can present, who can in essence sell and tell the story outside of the R&D team to get that kind of cross-functional buy-in. Is that something that you're observing or are we quite early in that kind of culture shift at a recruitment and people level within R&D? You know, it's um, we are very early in it. And what I'm seeing is that um, companies who do well in this way understand that it's not one particular type of person in R&D that makes this successful. So we tend to traditionally think of, you know, a very left brain structured um, analytical type of person, um, you know, who, who can think through all of these problems. But what I've actually discovered is that there's six different archetypes of innovators, whether it's in R&D or it's in the other part of the organization. And these archetypes go beyond a job title or job role. You know, it's not just an, um, in, you know, an engineer or a tester or whatever that job title may be, but it's who these people are at the heart of how they interact with the world around them. 
And they go from um, a strategist who, you know, who loves that traditional strategy and planning and getting things done and, and getting things out the door. But then you have to look at in order to get all of this through an organization, you also need people who are collaborators because ideas can't go anywhere by themselves. And they're, they're people who care more about having ideas or, or products um, successful and they care less about that personal credit. And we look at these people and we see them as very gracious and humble and, and giving. And then you look at people like um, a culture shaper and they're able to um, uh, architect how this innovative idea is, is expressed. And oftentimes we'll see them as um, the people who kind of um, create the image and the perception of innovation and how it's articulated. And so people feel more connected with that idea of innovation within an, within an organization. And this is a lot of the reasons why we've seen the rise of the storyteller internally and, and how these storytellers can be so powerful. I mean, Steve Jobs was an incredible, incredible storyteller. And we see this with people like Richard Branson as well. They're amazing storytellers. And then you also have people, you know, who are provocateurs. Those they're they're nonconformists. They're always pushing the status quo, and they're saying, "Well, what if we tried this? What if we do this?" And they're they're very much about um, seeing how far we can push the organizational thinking without snapping it, but to really show up in those in those provocative ways that surprise and, and delight the people that we're here to serve. And then you look at the psychologist, and this is where we get into empathy and that that customer relationship. And um, it takes it brings more heart into what is traditionally a very um, a highly rational approach to solving problems. And looking at kind of back to some of that unstructured data, that unstructured innovation, and and how we look at trust in bringing you know risk, which is what innovation is, into the organization. And then this this last one is an orchestrator who is is that magical person who's able to work all of the political stepping stones. Um, they're able to look at the reputation of innovation within the organization, and they're they're kind of that linchpin that always is able to get things done. And these are things that are very important as we look at how we build and structure innovation teams in order to go beyond just what are those technical skills or job roles that we're hiring for, we have to look at how we start to build teams that can align and collaborate so the work can actually get out the door. Now, these archetypes aren't, aren't um, just relegated to the R&D section of an organization. These are archetypes that are in every part of an organization. You know, everybody is, is one of these. So understanding if you are a strategist and you need to work with somebody who's more of a culture shaper or collaborator, it's not on your R and D team. How do you find that other person in a, in a different part of the organization? And that is how you also start to break down those silos between I am part of that R and D group and innovator, and I'm part of the rest of the organization. And so you mentioned those archetypes and it's fascinating, Carla, when you are walking through a couple of them. God, I could see pictures in my mind of folks I've been lucky enough to work with. And whenever I look at our internal organization or when I speak to our customers, it's when they've got these cross-functional teams and the right stakeholders in each team working together. 
the magic happens and they end up having a spectacular period where they've launched product X. And if they look back in the rear view mirror, it was down to old John in marketing and, and Louisa in, in R and D and maybe X, Y, and Z all working together. And it, it really kind of snowball from there. But is, do you see opportunity in the future then for, digital capabilities which enable that so we walk through people in execution there but are you seeing any software or digital capabilities which facilitate what you just described getting all these archetypes working together in a in a synchronous way is that are we early on that or are you are you already seeing that in the market just curious you know i i see digital technologies supporting the communication between groups Mm -hmm. But innovation at its very root, I mean, it's it's a very human thing. There's so much we can do with technology, but it's the dynamics and the and the um, drawing on all of the different experiences that people bring to the table. And because at the end of the day, what we're doing is serving people. You know, it's they may be companies, but it's 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 the people who are within them. Or if you're a consumer oriented organization it's it's the people that you serve so it's important that we understand that there is a huge human element within innovation that we need to make sure stays front and center but i think in order to be efficient and effective and as powerful as we can as innovators we absolutely have to bring that technology side to the work that we do brilliant carl i've really enjoyed the exchange with you today some fun now, a quick fire round. So in terms of top three innovation megatrends, what, what do you, what's hot right now in your opinion, which will transform lives in the next kind of five to eight years? What's catching your imagination? You know, I think this last year we saw a lot of it, that, that ability to stay connected with people um, in ways that feel more human. I think that's, that's the biggest one. Um, I would say one that has been going on but because of what we've gone through um, health-wise, politically, um, economically the last year, it's, it's empathy in how we approach innovation. And I think third is one that you and I talked about as, as well, is looking at more AI and machine learning and how we can truly use that to harness the data that we have at large scale, particularly for very large organizations, so that we can really draw out um, you know, a different kind of observation and understanding and patterns that we may not be able to recognize as humans. Brilliant. And outside of your fantastic work, Carla, top two <laughs> books in innovation that you'd recommend for our audience? You know, I, actually, this has been my favorite book forever. Um, and I, I don't think the ideals behind it will ever go out of style. It's a book by an author named Dan Pink, and it's called A Whole New Mind. And it talks about why the best thinkers, problem solvers, you know, innovators are people with non-traditional backgrounds and why it's not just about um, strategic thinking. It's not just about, you know, divergent thinking. It's, it's how you have to work on both sides of the brain to truly be as, as, as effective as you can be as a thinker and a problem solver. And I think that book came out in about 2006 and I, 
I saw Dan Pink speak in Denver a couple of years ago and I had him sign the copy that I had. And I said, I've probably given away eight to 10 copies of this book, but this one I will keep. And um, I, I've probably reread it six or seven times. And it's just a very different approach to how we think toward the work that we do. Okay. And, and at the individual level, obviously we've seen some superstars recently in the last decade or so. Who are your top two innovators and why? Oh, gosh. You know, I would have to say I think Richard Branson is one of my favorite innovators. And I think one of the reasons is um, because he is able to take the work that he does in so many different directions. And it's very story driven um, and helps people understand the story behind the ideas and it's even his story that springs from the the virgin brand and, and purpose. It shows how you can expand the work that you do into so many areas of business because you have a story to tell and you tell it with, with passion and with clarity. Okay, well, well, Carla, I've really enjoyed the time with you today and, and thank you for hanging out with Pat Snap and the, yep, please stay safe and well and uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. This has been delightful. Thank you so much, Ray, for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It was fun, stimulating, and and inspiring. That is it for today's podcast, everyone. I want to thank Carla Johnson for jumping on today's podcast. If you listen this far, first of all, thank you so much. And secondly, for doing so, we're going to be giving away a free ebook to you. If you want to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, you can go ahead and download your copy of our free ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this report, we explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper-competitive world. Download your free copy today. It's super simple. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or somewhere else, the show notes section of this podcast has a link. Go ahead and click it and you can download your free ebook today. Till next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.